When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Michael Phelps is indisputably one of the greatest Olympians of all time, perhaps the greatest male athlete of all time. But he continues as a champion of a different sort today, a champion for people with mental illness. Michael has turned his own battle with depression and suicidal thoughts into a new mission, not to chase medals, but to save lives. We sat down in Phoenix this week and talked about that mission and his journey. Michael Phelps, great to be with you again. You know, you have two stories that are sort of separate, but very much related, both admirable, both also filled with challenge. I want to kind of explore both of them. Um, And, uh, you know, as I've said when we got together before, people think of you as the guy in the Wheaties box, but life is more complicated than that. Tell me about uh, tell me about uh, growing up in Maryland and uh, and and what your life was like as a as a kid. Um, well, yeah, growing up in Maryland, uh, my mom put myself and my sisters all in the water strictly just for water safety. That was the only reason why we ever started in the pool, and and we grew up around the summer pool, so we were always playing and splashing around and and uh my mom just wanted us to be safe when whenever we were around the pool so this is rogers forge we grew up in rogers maryland. forge maryland well what was uh, rogers right rogers of, forge like i mean rogers forge is like a small little town home community um like an industrial town right it's, yeah uh-huh. yeah i mean we but like you know for me like i grew up walking to school i grew up down the street from all my friends um and, and I guess, you know, sort of once we started getting into the sport of swimming, um, that was, you know, for me, that was kind of my exciting point because as a kid growing up, I was made fun of a ton, um, whether it was for big years, bouncing off the wall, never being able to sit still, all this stuff. And, and swimming for me was a kind of a place where I could channel my energy and I ended up being good at it. So I have to nice. tell you, I have to tell you that um, I've heard you tell this story about being sort of a hyperactive kid mm-hmm. um, and I grew up the same way but long before anybody really knew what hyperactivity was and uh, you know I'm my teachers I remember my teachers calling my parents and saying you know we're gonna let him just pace in the back of the classroom mm-hmm. when we're not having to do stuff because he just got this yeah. and it's challenging it is and it, I mean like I, I can still remember growing up whether it was in middle school and and then on in high school uh, I had the same problem I could never sit still I was leaning back on my chair constantly making little dents in the in the floor <laughs> of the school classroom um, and and I got in trouble because I, I couldn't sit still and, yeah. and I still to this day remember an English teacher I think in seventh grade sixth or seventh grade telling me and telling my mother that I'd never amount to a thing because I had ADHD and I couldn't sit still and I couldn't focus and I couldn't, I couldn't get the task done. Um, and, and how did that feel? Um, at that point, I think I was more just kind of ticked off more than anything else. I was like, how can somebody say this? Like, how can you say this to a kid? Number one. Um, and that just motivated me even more. You know, like when somebody says something like that, to me, it instantly flips a switch and I automatically am going to do everything in my power to prove you wrong and show you that I can do more than what you think. And, so it motivated you in your, in your swimming? And I mean, really in everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I was never really a great student growing up. Um, I mean, I was good at math and good at science because numbers and that stuff always uh, fascinated me. Um, but other than that, like I had a hard time really sitting down and grinding and getting down to the work. Um, so I guess when that, that kind of happened in middle school, it kind of opened up my eyes and, and well, I let, just, let me just stop you for a second, because I, I, I know that they, 
they prescribed Ritalin for mm-hmm. you, which now is very, very common, kind of controversial in a way. But we just watched it. I just watched a documentary about. Uh, I think Maria Shriver that I think she was behind some oil, uh, part of it, and it was it was insane about if, the if overprescription of, of of and basically how nowadays it's second behind the opioid crisis, and and if you look at it, it's basically adults, and it's not children who need it. It's right. adults who have used it, who have gotten into using it during college years. Where yes, they cram for, for studying. Right, yeah. like it, what do they call it? The math pill or the happy pill? I think it's what they referred to it as. So for me, it was it was interesting because I grew up, like you said, taking Ritalin, and that was something that um, for me it was something that was very helpful. But also at the same time, I think growing up in middle school, I didn't want to be that kid that was being called to the nurse's office to get my prescription to help me through the day. I wanted and the to other kids would know that. that you were taking uh, I mean, medication. They they knew I was going to see the nurse every day at that same exact time, and you're going to get medication. So mm-hmm. I didn't like that. Um, so I, I basically asked my mom, I was like, "Can I not take this anymore?" And, and she kind of gave me a challenge that, you know, if you can show me that you can focus and you can get your work done, then we can figure out another way and another route um, to go down. Do you think it would have gone easier for you if you had kept on taking the medication? I don't know. And, and, and honestly, I've, I've thought back to a lot of childhood moments, whether it's been this or other things that have happened where in my head, I'm like, well, well, what if this went mm-hmm. this way instead of this way? Would I have changed? And, and, um, you know, I think really the only solution or the only like answer that I have in my head that ever comes up is like, it happened for a reason, you know, and, and I was able yeah. to get through it and I was able to get to where I needed to go. You know, it's interesting because, um, yes, th- there are medications that are overprescribed, uh, and then there are medications that people need. Yeah, no, 100% uh, agree. Antidepressants yeah. and... Um, you have to have it to survive. Yeah, and 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 other uh, and other medications, and yet um, we still and we'll get into this a little bit more. But people still feel like somehow it is a blemish on their character to have to take medication for mental illness. Is that are illnesses like any other illness, like that you would take medication for and think nothing of it? But I mean, and, and, and that, that I think is like the cool thing about life, right? right? Like we're all different in so many ways and our minds are all structured so many ways and our bodies, we all have so many different things that go on from a day-to-day basis. So it's like that I think is, is something that's cool about human nature. Just we have to have, we are, we're, all, we're all programmed in a slightly different way and we all need different things to get by. And I think that's what makes the human race so cool and so fun. And, and um, you know, for me now, having children i see start seeing all of these different things and it's it's a cool part of life you um you talk a lot about your mom your dad uh your parents got a divorce when you were uh, eight or nine or something and um you didn't have a great relationship with your dad what he was a state trooper state trooper um former athlete yeah i mean he was a great football player great basketball player track and field played baseball um and and he was good in all of them. And, and, uh, you know, at a very young age, my parents split and, and I grew up in a single family household and, and, uh, it was challenging, you know, as a kid, I did want sort of like the white picket fence and the family dinner. And I, you were the only boy, you were a boy you had two sisters Yeah, and I was a baby of the family. And it's like, I wanted that as a kid growing up, I saw my friends having it. And, and, um, I think that was kind of like the first real struggle that I had kind of growing up because, um, he, he was never there. You know, he said he was going to be there sometimes and just never was there. So for me as a kid growing up and, and really almost carrying that abandonment feeling through my life for so long, um, until I got to that point where I just needed to figure out something that was going on inside of me and what I needed to let go of to be able to move forward in life. You know, your, uh, your sister Whitney, uh, said, uh, about the pool, that she saw it as a refuge. Oh, of she course. said, I, I didn't have to listen to people yelling. It was my escape. I took a lot of anger and beat it out, uh, beat it out just me in the bottom of the pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, you felt the same way. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely, there were moments growing up when I was training where I swam with aggression and I swam with, you know, a lot of anger. Um, and, and yeah, part of it was probably coming from home and, and coming what I was going, you know, coming from what I was going through, um, when we were in, 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 in our home life. And, and, uh, was there a lot of, would, there was a lot of conflict in the home? And there was a little bit, like I remember a little bit growing up, um, you parents, were young or she probably remembers more. I was young, but I remember arguing, 
Um, and, and, you know, I was, I was always around Whitney. Whitney was the closest, you know, we were closest in age and, and she was there when, when, um, I was growing up coming through middle school and, and, and that stuff. So she saw me, uh, the most, and we spent a ton of time together. Um, she, uh, she actually just left this morning. So it's kind of funny you brought that up, <laughs> but no, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was, it was hard. And, 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 and there were times where like, I, I spoke to this the other day, somebody asked me if I ever screamed underwater. And if you could hear people screaming underwater, I let out a lot of profanity underwater. I mean, there were times where I'm pushing off the wall, whether in pain or pissed off, and I am expletives out the wazoo, um, either to get through that repeat or just because I was frustrated. Um, you, you know, I, I'm going to bring this up later in a different context, but I did a uh, one of my Axe Files TV shows with Charles Barkley, mm -hmm. recorded it the other day, going to air on uh, Saturday. And Charles, uh, his father left when he was young. And he said, you know, I played my first, probably my first four or five years in the NBA, just angry, angry at everything, angry that, at my father for leaving, you know, angry that I flunked Spanish and couldn't graduate, graduate with my class, you know, angry, uh, you know, and he, and, and he said I, I, it was unhealthy in a way. I was sure. playing with a fury that was... Uh, that was unhealthy. It sounds like there's a little of that for you as well. Yeah, and honestly, like, like that's like one of the things like I think back of like if it was the picket fence, like would I be in the same shoes I am today? You know, and I think that that was a part of life for me that I had to go through and had to experience, and and we all experience that part of life differently. And and you know, for for kids growing up, or for my kids growing up especially, like I would never want them to go through that and have those feelings, those negative feelings that that I carried for so long through my life. And and um, you know, I said it to you on stage on, on in Chicago. I was really good at compartmentalizing things and stuffing things down, and and um, just letting them sit inside of me forever and carry them. And, and at a certain point, that's when I have my meltdown and a blow up and, and that's what it leads to. And it's unhealthy. And, and, you know, that's, you know, one of the things that we're working towards now and the initiative that we're trying to get people to stand up and talk about things that mm -hmm. are frustrating them, um, because they do eat you alive and it, it's not safe. Let me ask you an, uh, a question. Do you think that, um, do you ever think, what if I, you're much more settled in your life now. We're going to talk a little bit more about that journey and how you arrived at this place. Do you ever think if you had been settled from the beginning, if you had had that white picket fence and a more balanced life and didn't have some of the challenges you had, that you wouldn't have had that sort of preternatural drive yeah. that would have le that led you to 28 Olympic I, medals? I mean, I 100% agree. Like, I, I don't think I would have been able to get to the point in my swimming career um, without having that anger. Like that was something that drove me. I mean, I, I still think back to, you know, I thought about this the other day. I broke the American record short course in the 200 fly uh, in my hometown. And, and my dad was supposed to be there and he wasn't and he never showed up. And that was really my first American record ever, ever short course. And I was never a very good short course swimmer. So I was, it was a big deal. Like I was really excited. I was in high school. Like you never really saw many high school kids do that. And, and, um, that frustrated me. Um, yeah, well frustrated but, would be enraging. <laughs> it's hurtful. It, it, I mean, it's stink. Like it, it's awful, yeah. you know, like, like there's that feeling that you get so excited and then just get let down. Um, and, and then you have to carry through, carry that, and then try to deal with that among the other things that you have going on. It just makes it more challenging. Did you think that if you, I mean, I want to get into the swimming because you, you sort of tossed that off. You were a phenom. I mean, you were breaking records as a teenager that were unthinkable. Yeah. Uh, and it started pretty young. In fact, you, um, you, you paired up with a coach. Bob Bowman. Now you, you two, you two guys both burst on the scene. He's now considered one of the great swimming yeah. coaches of all time. A, a lot because of his sure. association uh, with you. You, you saw him when uh, you met him when you were eleven. Uh, I read, and I don't know if this is true, that the first time you met him, uh, that it was when he came into the locker room after you were in some sort of scrape. Oh uh, yeah. And he I got, I got a swirly. I, well, I was like an inch away from getting a swirly that day. Um, I had two older guys that had me uh, 
held me up by my ankles, getting ready to dunk me in the toilet at Towson University. I remember the two guys exactly. He came in, ripped the, uh, those two to shreds, and then, um, I mean, within probably a couple months, I was swimming for him. And and I remember seeing him on deck, and I was like, I'm never swimming for this guy. All this guy does is yell and whistle, and I could never, ever deal with just this kind of craziness this guy brings to the to the pool. And sure enough, a couple months later, I was in his in his, in his uh, workout, and we started just cranking out sets. And um, I mean, obviously, like when we spend that much time around each other, he's more than a coach, you know. And I think that was the the only way that we were able to keep our long, our longevity, like we did. I mean, we're never going to be able to go that long unless we're both willing to make changes and grow as we go through that process. And I think that was something that was probably the most enjoyable, but most frustrating as well. Because he always looked back at me as that eleven year old kid, and that pissed me off <laughs> a lot. <laughs> what, what he you, you talk about how how much he drove you. Mm-hmm. Um, he just knew how to press the exact button. Like that was something that was so good. Like, like he was able to get whatever amount of, of, of percent extra out of me every single day when I had something like, you know, something away from the pool that was, you know, a conflict or something that was bothering me. He was able to get me to focus for those two hours, um, and, and get the job done that I wanted to do. And I think that was, that was probably what made him so good for me. And, and, and the reason why if I was swimming for any other coach in my life, it never would have been as well as it was. I, uh, uh, I also read that he um, called your mother uh, in 2000, just in the run-up to, uh, to your first Olympics, and said, we got to talk about this because this media thing is going to become intense. Yeah. Um, and, and that was a prescient thing. I mean, he knew what was about to happen and, and it did happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we, like, I remember we came back from like a, a, a nationals, uh, like six months before the, the trials. And my mom was always like very supportive of everything that we did. So she decorates the front yard with stars and stripes, way to go, <laughs> this, that, the other. And Bob is like, take that down now. You're getting ahead of us. You're getting ahead of yourself. There's a lot more that's going to come. Um, so she kind of, backed you were 15, off a we 15. Yeah. So she kind of backed off a little bit and, and, you know, Bob and I kind of controlled everything. You know, he was the one that was obviously doing all the stuff at the pool and, and, um, you know, mom was in charge of making sure I was eating well and sleeping as much as I could. And the rest is on me. So it's like, we had this little triangle going on that, that, you know, all of us worked together to be able to, to give me the best opportunity that I had. And, and. Um, I think that was, I mean, she was, she was awesome. I mean, watching her with my sister and I, I think she learned a lot from, uh, from Whitney's career as well. Cause um, she, she was a, a, was a, a, a high class swimmer. I mean, yeah. she was a Olympic potential. I mean, she was number one in the nation, number three in the world in 95 going into the 96 trials. Um, and then found out that she had bulging and herniated disc in both of her neck and her back from over usage and overwork. Um, so that put her kind of put her out of the sport for good. And, and, uh, um, we both made Olympic trials in 2000 and she was there and, and she was, you know, one of my biggest supporters through this whole thing. She knew what it took. And, and that was something that she really wanted just to be able to be on the Olympic team and, and to, rep- to represent your country at that meet. Um, but Michael, there's a big difference between 15 and 21 or 23 or how, how did you, and you, I remember, I, lived, I mean, I remember I the coverage you were, you were, you know, you, you came within a second of winning a medal and you already were getting this enormous amount of attention. I mean, I remember the first press conference. Somebody said, have you, do you have a girlfriend? Have you kissed them? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, what is going on here? I'm 15. Why are these people pelting <laughs> questions like this at me? Um, so that was the first time I actually said no comment, uh, which was, which was good. I, 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 I got, think that was the right answer. Yeah, I, I had, so I, I had a nice teaching <laughs> lesson right before him, but, uh, but I mean, that has to work on your head when, yeah, it, when you, but you know, I mean, it, you go back to school and now you're like a, a celebrity. But I think like that was the thing. It was, you know, like a, as a kid growing up, I, I truly did basically like I was a boy in a bubble, you know, like I, I lived in a bubble really. Like I was isolated from a lot of stuff. Like, you know, I was never putting myself in any bad situations. And, and the people that I had around me, I think were the reason why I was able to keep everything 
moving forward. I had the best support around me. My friends understood exactly what was going on. My true friends did. Um, and, and obviously my mom and, and my family and coach wanted everything to work out perfectly smooth. So, um, I mean, I think it was kind of easy for me to kind of go through high school after that, you know, but it, it, and, and I about also, the expectations, but I think I knew, you know, like for me, like I had the goal of wanting to be an Olympian, wanting to be a professional athlete, wanting to be a world record holder. And I knew kind of once I first signed my contract in 2001 with Speedo, um, that I knew that I wasn't going to be like, obviously you want to get paid and you want to get paid well when you're an athlete. So the, I, I figured out the better I did, the more I got paid. So I was like, okay, well, that's all I have to do. I just have to keep working as hard as I can to try to get better and to try this to improve. This may seem stupid. Quick. Why was that important to you? Why was that so important? To um, you? you know, for me, like I, I had this thing as a kid growing up. Every time I broke a world record, I got to buy something. So that was an incentive for me. So it was kind of fun. So like as a... We never had that in my household. <laughs> I don't... But I'll take your word for it. That that's it was a good great. Thing. Like I got to buy like, you know, like as a kid, like... I wanted to buy a TV and, and I wanted this leather couch in my room or I wanted a computer, I wanted this. And, and when it came time to buy a car, I got to buy a car. So it was all these little incentives that I had. Um, and you guys didn't have a whole lot. There wasn't a ton no, of money. There, no, so. no. So this was, I mean, this is like, I was a kid in a candy store at this point. You know, mm -hmm. I'm 15 years old, making good money, great money at 15. Um, and, and, you know, signing contracts and, I was like, cool. I was like, okay. I just had to break world record. I was like, can't be that hard. So then I just started piling world records off. Um, I mean, I was swimming better than I ever, ever had. Uh, and, and that was something that, that kind of always motivated me. Any, any little slight, like, like you look for any edge, like carrot in front of me to kind of get me going. I looked for it because mm -hmm. that's, that's what made me like, that's, that's what made me really perform. I mean, you can look at even in 2008, like what people said and like what we went back to with my, my, uh, middle school teacher, like what people say, if they say something negative about me, Oh, I eat it. Mm -hmm. I just eat it and I store it away. And when I get to that point where I need that extra motivation, I think back to that, or I go back to that that sort of compartment and pull it out to, to kind of help me go to that next level. Speak about money. We're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back with Michael Phelps. You know, uh, before the 2004 Olympics in Athens, uh, Bob Bowman did an interview and he was very, very confident that you were going to do well. And he said that you had this mental ability that separated you from the others uh, that he said lots of people have ability, but there was something about your mental makeup. that And this intrigues me a lot. I talked to Barkley about this. I've talked to other athletes. It's like elite athletes yeah. about it. What What is it that makes the elite athlete deal with pressure in a way that talented other athletes do not? I mean, I think it, it's like you see it a lot at the Olympic level. Like you see, obviously, the great separated from the participants. I guess I mean, I guess you can say that. Like the people who are there just to go and show up, and then you have the people who are always achieving the highest possible things that you can. And and I think like the biggest thing is there are people who love to win. There are people who don't like to lose. And I think something for me was I just didn't want to lose. Like that was the one thing. So I purposely just went out of my way and, and worked even harder because I didn't care how much pain I was in every day in workout because I knew it was going to be that much greater at the end of the day when I got to the end of the road where I was able to do something that people thought was absolutely impossible. Um, so for me, it was just that switch, that, that competitive switch. Um, and the pressure, so the pressure didn't, you didn't feel that. you No, because, but, but, but I mean, it's like, for me, like I tried to keep it as simple as possible. I knew if I was doing the work, I would get the results. So if I did the work every day and I did the work well, then it was just kind of a no-brainer that when it came time that I was going to step up to the block, I had done all the work. I worked harder than the people next to me, and I got the results that I deserved. Like I mean, I, I like I had this guy ask me once. This reporter asked me. He goes, "Do you feel bad for winning all the gold medals?" And I looked at him with this, like a dead straight face, and I was like, "I." I can you repeat yourself? I was like, I have no idea. Yeah, that's what a to hard. Say to you. That's a that's like, a kind of crazy question. I was like, I'm sorry that I wanted to work harder than everybody else, and I wanted to push myself to limits that even I didn't think were possible. But my mind was open to it, um, and I think that was something that Bob did at a very young age. Like he he just kind of helped me believe that I truly could achieve whatever I wanted, and and that's why I always say like, 
yeah, we can do everything we want. I mean, I'm not going to be able to stand outside and flap my arms and fly, but anything else that I put my mind to, there's obviously a path to get there and certain tools that you have to pick up along the way to be able to make yourself great. And um, I was willing to do that. I was willing to go through any pain or struggle to be able to make sure that I was as ready as I possibly could. So this thing about not about hating to lose, about not wanting to lose, I, I'm parochial about this. Wherever I can, I invoke Michael Jordan because mm-hmm. he was, I spent 13 years watching him in Chicago. And whenever he was on the court, you always had the sense that you weren't going to lose because mm-hmm. he wasn't going to let you mm-hmm. lose. And he famously hated losing, you know, to the point where his college roommate accused Jordan of cheating his mother in a game of cards because he just didn't want to, he didn't want to lose. But, um, but that's, that's different than fear of losing. I mean, but if you have the fear of losing, then, then you're obviously, I mean, obviously you're afraid of losing, but it's like you have that, that thought already in your head. So it's like, you know, like I knew when I stepped up to the block, I couldn't come with, uh, I have to hit the third turn while I have to get my breakouts while I have to have a good start. I have to do this or do that because at that point you, you can't change it. I can't change any of the preparation. So all so I have to do now is it's get in, in the water. It's instinct that's inbred through training. Yeah. Now I just get in the water and just race. execute. And, and when you put me in the pool, I'm going to try to rip that person's head off next to me as mm-hmm. bad as like, I'm literally going to destroy the person next to me so bad. Like that's all I wanted to do. Um, and then Obviously, if I hit my time, I was happy. And if I wasn't, and I still won, I was probably upset. And you, well, that that uh, Athens Olympics was. Uh, Look, I mean, for huge. me, it was great. I loved it. Um, Big breakthrough. Uh, you had what eight eight medals, six gold, two bronze, yeah. um, and you're on top of the world, and then you crash. In, uh, in the fall of 2004, I saw somewhere, and maybe you said it to me when we were together last, that uh, it was a hard time after every one of these Olympics. Why? Um, honestly, just because you work four years to get mentally, physically, emotionally strong and ready for this moment. And, and after those four years, after you're done, it's kind of like you just take a step and just fall right down and you have no idea where to go no idea what to do. And, and, um, you know, that I think was the start for, you know, for me to, to kind of realize that something was going on that I needed to fix. And, and um, you got picked up for DUI, yeah, that I got which was a big first, national story. Yeah, first DUI, um, 2004, um, November, October, November. Um, and, and those dates like that, like, three to six, three to four weeks, three to six weeks. Um, it wasn't a good time for me. I mean, cause that's when that happened. Um, second DUI happened. Um, photo from 2008 occurred all in those like three to six weeks. Um, so we didn't know what was going on around that time that was causing me to kind of go crazy and go AWOL and kind of just disappear and put myself in bad situations. Um, so after that one, let let me just interrupt you for a second and just ask you, um, do you, have you talked to other athletes about this? I mean, I have to think that, I mean, you had other things going on, but, uh, there has to be a letdown for all of them, uh, after, after games, especially someone. Yeah. Especially those who compete at the level you did. Like leaving an Olympics? Yeah. Um, I mean, like that. And, and, and I think for me as an Olympian now watching the Winter Games come to kind of come to a close over the last couple of weeks and, and see what they're going to do and see and understand. I know what they're going through emo- emotionally, mentally. And, and honestly, it's, it saddens me that we still don't have anything put in place to help them make that next transition because that's where I truly can say probably 75, 80%, 90% of probably athletes that come off of an Olympic games go through some kind of post Olympic depression. And that's something that, that we have to be able to figure out and have to be able to help people get through because I'm somebody who's gone through at least three or four major depression spells after games that, that, you know, I've, I've put my life in danger. Um, and, and the USOC, in my opinion, hasn't done anything to help us transition after an Olympics. And, and, um, I think that's sad. I think it's unfortunate and, and, um, it's something that we're working towards now. We actually have a documentary coming up, um, where we're 
finishing it off talking to Olympic gold medalists from, I mean, everything back from, I guess it would be like from 96 games all the way up till today. You know, it started when Stephen Holcomb took his life. And, and um, that was, it was around him basically why we started doing this. And, and um, I'm hoping to get more people to, to open up and talk about it and, and have, hopefully be able to get, kind of get this resolved and, and kind of be able to help people as much as we can because it's something that, that we have to do. And obviously it's, it's come to the forefront now where people are standing up and talking about it like we had, we had chatted about. Yes. And, and I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've been very lucky that I've been able to kind of turn it and make the, um, you know, the adjustment and, and learn and pick up a lot of tools throughout this process to help me when I'm in times of need. I mean, even now it's like, you know, for me personally now it's, it's, challenging from day to day with two children my wife is going brand new baby yeah so it's it's and i still find myself kind of reaching out for help when i need it because i know it's it's for a therapy therapy yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i've i've reached out and i've i've taught i've chatted with actually a couple therapists in the area over the last couple weeks just trying to get in and and trying to chat because it's hard to get in to even make an appointment yeah i mean there's sometimes it takes three weeks to get in to see a therapist so it's you mentioned the usoc um and it struck me just reading your story, a lot of people had a lot of invested in you, your sponsors, the USOC, the Olympic movement generally, because they want iconic sure. figures, your coach, everyone. Um, what, what does that feel like? Because it strikes me when you say they don't have anything for these athletes that they get everything from these athletes. These athletes are assets sure. to the USOC, but it sounds like that you don't always get treated like human beings. No, I, I don't think we do. Um, you know, I think it's it's kind of frustrating to watch because you know, like you said, like we we're we're competing to represent our country. We're competing to do everything we can to try to win a medal or um, you know to try to. To our country proud by wearing the stars and stripes international ground and when we come home from it um you know they're like kind of okay check who's the next kid coming in where's the next person um and and i think it's sad and and you know for i think for all that we do all the athletes do in all their rep- respective sports um obviously you see now there's a lot of people coming out and talking about ngbs and things that have happened in the past that that need to be fixed need to be changed uh and and um, NGBs, national governing bodies. Uh-huh. So USAG, like mm-hmm. gymnastics, yes. all that stuff, and, and yeah, I mean, like, what, what do you make of all of those stories? It's not just because it's not just uh, gymnastics, but there's been quite a bit in swimming, of, in sure. swimming yeah, of course, ab- abuse of yeah. young young kids um, and so on. It, it's very frustrating. It's very sad. Were you aware of that when you were swimming? In swimming, uh, I mean, you kind of knew what was going on in some in some instances. Um, I mean, I think you saw some of it or you heard about some of it. Um, and, and it, it's just, it's something that, that can't be brushed under the rug anymore. And I think, you know, we have to stand up and, and voice our opinions and be able to talk about what we love and, and what we want changed in order to do that. And I think that's one of the cool things about being able to have that platform and, and being able to change it for our future generations who are going to come in and, and take over the shoes that we walk in. And, and, um, it's just, it's just not right. It's disgusting. You, uh, while we're on the subject of, of the governance of the Olympics, um, you know, the Russians were cited for doping. That probably didn't come as a huge surprise uh, to you. Were you, how aware were you uh, of, the, of the prevalence of doping when you were swimming? And how frustrating was it to you? Sure. Um, I mean, you knew about it in sports. I mean, I, I knew it from... Just watching, you know, you think back to like 92 with the Chinese as well, you know, it, it, and the East Germans in the late 80s and, and 70s. So it's like, you know, you see all of these countries who um, basically taking the easy way out. And, and, you know, I always thought the only person I can control is me. And is it frustrating that I don't know if I've ever swam in a completely clean heat at an Olympic Games or World Championships? Yeah, it is. But, you know what, I can't do anything about it. And... The IOC should be doing something about it. The USOC should be doing something about it. And, um, I mean, WADA, all of these drug testing agencies should be stepping up. And, and you know, I think what, what um, USADA does, is, is doing now in the U.S. with all of their athletes is, is 
they're following a perfect protocol. Like, I mean, look, like my life literally was written down on a piece of paper and USADA and every other doping agency in the world had access to me at any time, whenever they wanted, no matter where and I you was. You testify, you were there before I, Rio, they, they hit you 16 yeah. times for oh, test. I got, did you, I was testing and, and all did, the time. Do you think you got extra attention because of? I didn't care. I mean, like, you know, I, I specifically put myself through a program to get tested more going into 08. Like, twice or once or twice a week for blood testing and once or twice a week for urine testing. I made myself available for that. So you have all the results. You have all of my stuff. Look at it. Do whatever you got to do. Like, I'm clean. Go ahead. And I, I didn't care doing that because I wanted the sport to be clean. And I still want sports to be clean. I think it's frustrating now, especially having two kids who hopefully will, will you know, have some interest in sports or something, whatever interest they have. It's going to be a conversation that I'm going to have to have where I'm going to have to break down and be like, yeah, some kids cheat and take the easy way out, but it's yeah, not the right way You've got to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I saw a third, uh, I think a third of the athletes at the uh, Rio games were never tested. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there was, there was something like, like 1200 athletes or it was, it was over a thousand athletes that weren't tested six months coming into the Rio games. Really? That's bizarre. I was probably tested 20 times in six months leading to the games. Mm -hmm. but we're not held on the same playing field and that's not right. Let's go back to, uh, to, to your journey because you were, you, you said, I think I saw somewhere that you said in 2004 when, when you had the DUI that you felt like you had let people down. Um, what's it like to have, feel like you have eyes on you all the time? I mean, I, I think at that moment, you know, really kind of seeing my mom as she was in tears, um, upset, um, you know, it, it not only hurt me, but it was like, I need to change this. I need to make sure that I'm learning and I'm moving forward. And, and I never see my mom like this again. And I, I don't let people down. And, and I took all of that on myself. Um, and I basically just put all of it on me. Um, it was on me. It was, I was the one that did it and I was the one that made that choice. And, and, um, I carried that along as I, I mean, I'm, you're still 19 years old then. I'm very hard. I like, I've, I was always very hard on myself and that was just a part of who I am and a part of what I was growing up. And, and, um, I just, I basically blamed me for everything and, and, um, yeah, it was frustrating and, and annoying. And, and I, I just, Felt like, I mean, after you go to an Olympic Games and you're on that level and, and the, you know, the world is watching you uh, and you screw up, um, it's, it's, it is a part of human life and that's something that I learned afterwards, but um, there's still no excuse for it. And, and um, you know, I think nowadays we, Nicole and I have been able to kind of live our life how we want, knowing that everything that we do is under a microscope, everything that we do. You know, it's like, Nicole, if it, this, this is, this came up the other day. Uh, what was it? She had something. Boomer was laying in Beckett's little like pillow in the bed or in, um, on the, on the couch. And, and, uh, Nicole's like, I want to post this, but I can't because I know I'm going to get barbecued by somebody else. that's going to say something to me on social media and it's wrong to do this or do that. And it's like, that's just something you have to consciously, consciously think of. And, and I just said to her, I said, honey, I said, we can live our life however we want. We can do whatever we want. And if somebody doesn't like it, I'm sorry, that's too bad. Yeah. This is our life. We have to live our life how we want to. And I think that going through the experiences that we've had in the public eye, both together as a family and me personally, I think that's kind of how we, like, that's how we live our life every day. Because you, I mean, you know, I think as, as human beings, we know we can't please every single person in the world. And, and you know what, our, our, you know, for me, I want to live my life how I want to live my life, and I want to be happy. And that's how we choose every single day now to do it. But to, you went you went down before you came uh, yeah. up oh, to yeah. arrive at mm -hmm. that point. You had the spectacular Olympics in Beijing in 2008, uh, and uh, you won eight gold medals, uh, unprecedented. Uh, you and came then out with another, and then up. you, and then and then you crashed again uh, and that it was after that that you were photographed yeah with a bong with a bong yeah. and I, was, I mean 
and that honestly, like I, I'll never forget that day. And, and I still talk about that day. Um, and, and, um, obviously it's, uh, you know, for me, I, I, I learned a lot about who I surround myself with. And, and I think that was a massive learning experience for me. Because someone um, posted that photo. Mm-hmm. Um, who you thought was a friend. It was actually the only person at the house I didn't know. Oh, I see. And there was like six people there. And that was the one person I didn't know. Um, yeah, and it's... And, and honestly, like, I, I remember, like, close people to me were being like, you know who it was. And I said, I know exactly who it was. I know the name of the person that it is. And I said, what are you going to do? I said, nothing. What, what can I do? I can't do anything. Like, that was a decision that I made. And, and you know, obviously, uh, you know, that got publicized. And I, I, can't, I can't do anything about it. Like, yeah, it's everywhere. What, what am I supposed to do? You know, uh, I had a conversation like this uh, a few weeks ago with Anna Marie Cox, who's a blogger uh, and a writer and very, very prominent commentator who went through some of the same experiences and uh, had a very serious uh, suicide attempt from which she was lucky to uh, escape. Um, And she said, you know, people don't understand that you don't drink or take drugs, uh, you know, to, uh, to be, uh, abnormal. You take it to be, feel normal that you're, you know, that you, that there is a, uh, that's how you adjust in a sense, self-medicating. Um, is that, uh, was that your experience? Um, I I mean, mean, how much, how much was drinking and other stuff part of, 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 of your life during that period of time? I mean, if the first time I ever took a drink, I think it was the night I got a DUI. So good first night. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, looking back to, you know, from 2004 to really probably 2008, 2010-ish, um, I think that was for me the point in my life where I just kind of experimented with everything that I never did as a kid. Um, you know, from being in that bubble, from living in that bubble for so long, that was kind of like me just letting loose and trying to be a kid, quote unquote, normal kid. Trying to recapture what you never had. Right. Um, so, you know, obviously learned that. And, 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 but also like, I think it was probably part, like partially me just running and escaping from whatever it is I was escaping, I was escaping from, whether it was childhood things, whether it was stuff that I had going on inside that I didn't want to deal with. Um, or stuff related to family or friends or girlfriend, whatever it might have been, like just me outlashing and just going crazy just to get away and let steam off. I mean, and, and if you go back to 2014, that's exactly what I was doing then. I want to do that. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Michael Phelps. You mentioned 2014. You, you, there was some question about the 2012 Olympics and whether and you, you were out of shape and you came back, uh, and you performed well again. Uh, Depends on who you ask, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you want a a fistful of medals. Yeah, I want a handful. It was good. It was all right. And then, um, but 2014, you sort of bottomed out again, uh, another DUI. And then, and tell me about the days after that. I mean, what? If you go back to 2012 or the lead up to 12, I basically, like, I tried to almost really run away from doing any of the work. I didn't want to do a thing. I wanted to be done with the sport. I was locked into a couple contracts. I had to swim through the Olympics. I didn't want to do it anymore. So I just forced myself to basically do the bare minimum to get by. And coming out of the games, I was like, thank God, I never have to see that pool again. I never have to put a suit on. I don't have to see coach. Like, I'm done. See ya. Bye. I'm just going to run off and who knows what I'm going to do. And, and um, <clears throat> I think the path that I was coming on leading into 2014 with trying to just, um, I mean, I think I was running from something. And, and um, obviously at that moment, that night, I mean, I remember everything that happened that night. Uh, and, you know, I remember the next morning waking up and, and just really not wanting to be around anymore you know like i honestly like you wanted to die i wanted to die yeah i straight wanted to die um 
you know, there is, you know, for me traveling so much, like I, I don't think that, uh, traveling a lot. I, we, we were prescribed Ambien as a kid. We were traveling the world and, and, um, I actually look back and I, I, I had one Ambien left and I'm actually happy. I only had one left because if you had a full prescription, you, you might have, yeah, who knows? And, and I think, you know, that, that honestly scares the living hell out of me. Um, and, and, uh, that night I remember I took an Ambien and I just, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know where I was going to be the next day. And, and the next day I woke up and, and, uh, um, I was just like, this sucks. Like I'm not going to leave my room. I'm not going to talk to anybody. Uh, I sat in there for like two or three days going up, down and emotions, up, down, up, down the whole entire time. Didn't eat, didn't do anything. And, and, um, I sat there and, and the longer I sat there, the more I kind of started to think, um, you know, I, I, I kind of lost interest in, in wanting to commit suicide. That was, that was, you know, for me, I think growing up, I, I, I always tried to find ways and solutions to move forward and to try to get stronger and try to get better. And I think after going through those three days where I was just like sitting there, I was like, I have to be able to figure out something like, why am I like this? Why am I so down? Like everything was going good, kind of good. And, and then all of a sudden this happens. Like, why do I not want to be alive? And, and, um, just found a way to really kind of ask for help. And I think that was the first time in my life I ever asked for help. I always wanted to do things my way. I wanted to do things and I wanted to try. And if I failed, I, figured out another way to get there. It's just and how you I came to a place here in Arizona called the Meadows. Meadows yeah. Uh, talk, talk about that. I, re I read somewhere you said that, that you'd never been more scared oh, than yeah. on your way mm -hmm. there. We, um, we left Baltimore, flew to Arizona. We flew to uh, an airport right next to the Meadows, flew privately down, um, kind of like left nobody was around we didn't want anybody to know where i was going and and I remember getting off the plane and and i said to my mom i said this is the most afraid i've ever been in my entire life Why? um it was something new and something i'd never experienced or gone through and i think that's why i was so nervous because i didn't know what the outcome was were you worried that did you know that you were that you were going to be expected to open up I mean, I assume that. I, I, was, I assume that a, was, was that was that a scary proposition for someone who's been so buttoned down all your life? Yeah, and 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 also just opening up in front, like in a group setting. I think that was something that was like I was I was nervous about because I was like I don't want these people to judge me. I don't want this. Like I, I want to be able to go in and get and get help the help that I need. And and I remember the first couple of days in there. Um, we we called it like the nursery it's where like the new guys that came in had to stay for a couple of days go through all the health checks and everything and and uh i was in there and and i didn't talk to anybody the first two or three days not a single soul ate by myself did everything alone didn't communicate with anybody and i basically forced myself to sleep every night by working out in the room i was doing push-ups i was doing sit-ups i was doing squats i was just trying to Exhaust get yourself. some like yeah, just aggression out and, and just exhaust myself. And, and after the first two or three days, I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm here. Like I might as well just bite the bullet, open up. And, uh, a guy came up to me, um, and he said, hello. And I was just like, why is he coming to talk to me? Like, why, why are you looking at me? Uh, and he was super nice. And I just, I literally at that point, I think whatever it was that he said or he did or how he was around me, I just kind of was just like, screw it. I let my guard down and I was like, I'm here. I might as well just try to get as good as, like try to learn as much as I can about me and what I'm going through and what I need to be able to get through this. Um, so it was, it was kind of cool getting into a pattern there and a rhythm there of, of, you know, understanding that I can ask for help or that I, that, you know, I, I shouldn't be afraid to talk about this or that in front of somebody. And, and were you worried you were, you, they all obviously knew who you were. Mm -hmm. Did that worry you? You know, you talked about that experience of the kid posting the picture. Um, Were you worried about opening up that somehow it wouldn't stay in the room? Well, as soon as as soon as I, uh, um, we were watching football. It was like the fifth or sixth day there, and we were watching Sunday night football. And news had just come out that I was suspended from World Championships. The USA Swimming suspended me from World Championships and suspended me for six months of competition. 
And we're in a room sitting like this and everyone obviously just snap turns and looks at me. And I was like, yep. Hey guys, that's me. <laughs> I'm here. Yep. There you go. Hello. I was like, and that's news to me too. I didn't know I was suspended. Um, but after that, I think it was, it, it, it got a lot easier. Um, and I also have had the people who were running it, who have come up and they said, if you have any problems, if you have something that you don't like or is bothering you, come up and tell me. And, and, um, I guess, you know, we had phone time for an hour or twice a day and somebody did say something and they were asked to leave the next mm -hmm. day. So when I saw that, I kind of knew that they took it very seriously mm -hmm. and, and I was safe in there. Mm -hmm. Um, so I started opening up a little bit and, 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 you know, I think the best thing, you know, for me that happened in there is, is you know, even though I was very uncomfortable the first day when my therapist decided to dive into some stuff and I was basically put on blast in front of the group and I started sitting very comfortably. And by the end of it, I was on the edge of my chair getting ready to pounce. Um, I think after that day, I think it was just the easiest thing for me because I was excited to be able to understand more about what was going on. And, and, um, you know, I like the brutus, the brutal, honest truth. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's the only way I'm really, truly going to learn. Um, so with some of the things, my Painful, therapist, though. yeah, of course. Um, but I'd rather just hear it, the dead honest truth. Just tell you, me exactly you were there for 45 is. days during those 45 days, you brought people down mm -hmm. who were close to you, uh, including your, your mom, your, your dad as well. Yeah, I was on, and, and, I, and I you was, hadn't been, you hadn't talked with him in all. I was shocked, shocked. Um, we were coming into family week and, and my therapist goes, well, have you asked your dad? And I said, why? And he goes, well, you have to ask him. And I'm like, no, I don't. I'm like, I don't have to ask him. I'm like, I'm not asking him. I'm like, because I know he's going to say no. And I don't want to hear that answer mm -hmm. again. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to see, like open up the invitation and, and feel rejected again. And he said to me, and, and I don't think I would have taken it this way unless I had gone through what I'd gone through. He said, if he says no, you know where things stand. And you know that he doesn't want to do this and doesn't want to be a part of it. So if you can do that and get that answer, don't you think it's worth asking? And I asked, and he said yes and showed up. Um, and and, and what, what was that like? Was it um, challenging? Um, because we had never really expressed some of the emotions and feelings that we did in that room, ever. And... and you know, I think it was nice just to be able to kind of have a safe environment where we can actually have a real conversation where we're not blowing up on one another. Yeah. And I think that was a truly big change and a big step forward for us. Um, you know, we're both pretty hot headed and can, you know, we can get pretty, pretty, uh, pretty argue, argumentative or we can mm -hmm. argue a ton back and forth with each other. And, and, we were in a safe place where we were able to get exactly what we wanted across in a healthy way. And I think since then we're now able to actually talk. And that was something that we never did before. Yeah. So, you know, for me it was that part was just such a weight off my back because yeah. it you yeah. know, obviously something that we carried on for 20 plus years. Uh, Bob Bowman, I guess came down uh, as well. You're, you're coaching. I, I read an interesting thing. He said, I, uh, he didn't want you to go. He said, I thought he was going somewhere in Malibu to sit on a beach for six weeks and he would come out the same. But then he watched Phelps, this is from a New York Times piece, interact with his fellow patients during the fourth week of a six-week stay. Saw the kind, of, the kind, caring man he remembered. Before his sharpening turned him into a high-performance machine. Uh, and I thought that was an interesting way of putting it because in a sense he was involved in turning you into a high-performance yeah. machine. But it kind of goes back to, you know, we were we were willing to change and to grow together. Mm -hmm. and I think that you know. So there was recognition for him as well. Yeah, of course. As to what of his role yeah. in this all was. Well, he was like a dad to me growing up, you know. And I know that you know he he has said I think publicly that he kind of screwed up by not addressing some of the things that he knew I had going on, and and he tried to just push forward and keep moving instead of addressing those at a younger age. So, um, you know, I think that was, that was something really neat that made the last two years of my career 
so much more enjoyable because we grew together and we were able to just enjoy it and enjoy the process. How is the 2016 Olympics different than the three um, four? It Honestly, is you it know. Three or four? Four. Four, yes. Yeah. Uh, I was, I think, at a place where I truly could enjoy every single moment of those games. And, and you know, I think it, it's, this is weird. I mean, that was the first national team trip where I probably talked to every single athlete on that team. And for the carried life, the flag for the country yeah. coming I mean, into the just, stadium. I felt like I felt like a dad. Mm-hmm. I was a dad, but I felt like a dad on the team. Like these guys were all young kids that I'd watched growing up. And now, you know, we're on a team together. And, and some of them were telling me how they had my poster on their wall growing up as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I finally was able to see that the things I was doing was accomplishing my goals of changing the sport and and growing the sport and these kids right in front of me it's it's the, that, that's it yeah so you know for me i think at that point to be able to realize that and get to that that thought process was something that was so special for me um you know obviously my son and my wife and yeah. family being in the stands made it even better and it's icing on the cake and and just being able to close and finish my career how i exactly wanted to like I mean, I know 20 years down the road, I can come back and be like, yeah, I did. I did everything I wanted to do. Kind of amazing that you went to your first Olympics and you were a child. And you at your last Olympics, your child was there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was too young to, to probably remember, yeah. but but he was there. And, and and that's something like, I mean, even now, like we watched, uh, we watched my 200 IM from Rio with him one morning. We were eating breakfast and he saw himself and was like pointing things out. So... Uh, it, it's going to be cool to watch him grow up even more and, and then be able to show him some of that stuff and show him what he was a part of. You talk about the influence you've had on the sport. You're having a big influence now, which is really important because you're willing to have conversations like this and you're going around the country speaking. You're doing a lot of work with Patrick Kennedy and mm-hmm. his Kennedy Forum mm-hmm. on Mental Health. You are, uh, you, through your own foundation, the Michael Phelps Foundation, you're doing work with young kids and working with the boys boys and girls clubs um what is your what what how do you see your role now um i mean i think you know like for such a long time i i will say that my number one goal is teaching water safety to kids because it's something that we have to change and and they're way too many kids that are losing their lives and drowning incidents and and um it's now gotten bigger um to addressing the mental health component part of it you know for me as somebody who's gone through a handful of depression spells and, and has found myself in a spot not wanting to be alive, um, it, it's, it's something that happens every day in this world. And to be able to continue to go out and, and to explain people that it's okay to not be okay. Like, look, like, I mean, every day somebody's going to have ups and downs. And, and if we can continue to help people get out and talk about things and open up, I think that's, you know, for me was something that completely changed my life and saw, you know, I was able to see a such cleaner, happier, healthier way of living. Um, So if I can honestly save a life or save two lives, that's all I want. You know, for me, that's way bigger than ever winning a gold medal. And and with some of the documentaries that we have coming out, whether it's around uh, anxiety and depression with kids, um, with angst, the, uh, the documentary we just did recently, um, with the other one that we have coming up in the next couple of months, we wanted to, we want to try to work on another one talking about what social media does with anxiety and depression towards kids from the younger generation. So important. Um, you know, these are things that, that I think could really save lives. And, and to me, that's all that matters. Well, and I get to have fun doing it. Honestly, like this is something that is an experience that I've gone through and, I don't mind opening up and sharing and talking about it. and 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 it, it's enjoyable for me because I'm able to learn and grow from that as well. Um, so it's it's you know I you know being retired I guess kind of <laughs> weird to say uh, being retired from the swimming world. How old are you? Thirty three. Thirty two. Thirty two. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of weird to say, but you know I I think being retired from the sport I'm very happy with. Um, you know I think I could come back and do it again, but have zero desire or passion to do it. Um, and, and I'm very lucky and fortunate to wake up every day to have a mission that I can go out and talk about and, and open up about and hopefully make an impact on. Well, let me say this as someone who uh, lost a loved one to suicide, uh, I, I, I admire your 28 you. medals, but I think 
the champion that you are today for people who are struggling with mental illness uh, is extraordinarily admirable and appreciated. Michael Phelps, great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.